There need be no doubts in our minds as to whether he is followable. Whatever difficult teachings he will bring, we can pledge our allegiance to him and proclaim ourselves to be one of his disciples. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Jesus Begins His Ministry from Pastor Paul Twist. Pastor Paul's text for this series comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter four. Pastor Paul joins us now to help frame this historical narrative of the beginning of our Lord's ministry. So Pastor Paul, I think the Gospel of Matthew series is certainly gonna reveal much about our Savior that a lot of our listeners have never heard before. That's right, Matt. With the exception of the genealogy and the birth narrative in chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew's Gospel, the book seems less traveled within the Christian community. For example, did you notice that following Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and the wilderness temptation from Satan, Jesus returned to the region of Galilee? Why didn't he go back to Jerusalem? Well, Matthew actually answers that for us by quoting from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. You see, Jesus first went to the Gentiles because his focus was preaching repentance to all nations. Thanks, Pastor Paul. Always great to have you with us in this way. And now part one of Jesus Begins His Ministry. If you've been tracking with Matthew's argument through his gospel thus far, you'll remember that the first few chapters, the prologue, he was concerned with giving us many proofs. The initial claim that Matthew makes when he begins his gospel is that this man, Jesus, is in fact the long-awaited for Messiah of Israel who would bring about the hopes of the nation and a blessing to the Gentiles. And thereafter, one passage at a time, Matthew issues proofs to us to demonstrate that he was right in asserting Jesus as the Christ. Those proofs culminated with an emphatic public declaration from God himself. At the point of Jesus' baptism, God audibly speaks and declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Thereafter, Jesus is tested in the wilderness. This was our text last week, and we saw that Satan met with Jesus not so much to try and prompt him into a particular sin as he was concerned to probe his heart. What kind of son of God is this? And we found that Jesus is a son of God that would obey trust, and worship his Father completely. And it's critically important to remind ourselves that that episode of Jesus' testing in the wilderness comes at the very beginning of his public ministry. It's not halfway through, it's not at the end of his ministry, but the episode that just begins Jesus' ministry is the validation 
of this Son of God. We now know without any shadow of a doubt that this Son of God, this Christ, this King can be followed. We can trust him. There need be no doubts in our minds as to whether he is followable. Whatever difficult teachings he will bring, we can pledge our allegiance to him and proclaim ourselves to be one of his disciples. So you see Matthew shifts from that prologue where he is proving to us that Jesus is the Son of God to now seeking a response from us. And the same is true in our text today. Jesus begins his ministry in perhaps a somewhat understated manner. He moves from one area to another, and then he preaches a sermon that was the same sermon John the Baptist preached, namely that of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. He doesn't begin with a miracle. He doesn't begin with a lengthy sermon or a teaching discourse. Nothing outrageous, nothing fantastic. Jesus moves from one area to another and calls people to repent. It strikes us perhaps as somewhat understated the manner in which Jesus begins his ministry. And yet it's critically important to understand that here in these few verses, we are shown a series of themes that will become prevalent, critically important throughout the rest of Jesus's earthly life, by which we are to understand more fully the nature of his ministry and of the gospel. In this short text, as is so often the case, at the beginning of the biblical narrative, we find a number of themes being shown to us in order to better understand what will come after. Themes that will be fully fleshed out in the remainder of Jesus' ministry. Why would Matthew be concerned to give us these themes up front Why would he be concerned early on in Jesus' ministry to indicate to us, to signal to us what will be to come? I think at least in part. It's because Matthew does not intend any surprises in this narrative. He's not in the business of building a suspense-filled story. He doesn't intend any surprises. He wants to tell us from the very beginning, this is the nature of this man and of his ministry, and you can follow him. In the very next text, as we'll look next week, Jesus starts to summon people. Follow me, he says to these men. This will start to be a drumbeat in Jesus' ministry, calling for disciples. And so at the very beginning, Matthew shows us these themes in order that we would not be surprised. We would not be shocked, but we would know exactly what we're signing up for. We would understand who this man is, what is the nature of his ministry, and we may boldly proclaim ourselves to be his disciples. So this morning, I just want to walk through what these themes are. There are at least three of them, and consider each one in turn, noting how it explains Jesus more fully, and what ought to be our response in light of them. The first theme to which Matthew introduces us, is that of betrayal. Jesus' ministry will be one wherein he is betrayed. We read in verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, 
Or that word could equally be translated when Jesus heard that John had been handed over, or even an acceptable translation that John had been betrayed. When Jesus heard of this happening to John, he withdrew. He withdrew from the Jordan area into Galilee, settling in this small village called Capernaum. So what we see is a twofold movement at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. A twofold movement, first of withdrawing and then of going. He withdraws from the Jordan area and then he goes to Capernaum. And we might be tempted to gloss over this as if it is an insignificant detail. It's in fact highly significant. Why did Jesus first of all withdraw and then go to this region? The answer in a succinct summary form is because Jesus understood himself to be in the likeness of John. The summary answer is the reason Jesus does this is because he understood himself in the likeness of John. You might turn back just briefly to chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel and verse 11. We're reminded that when John came, he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, that term there of coming after, is a unique term. It is not a term that simply specifies Jesus would come after me in time. That's how we often think of the relationship between John the Baptist and Christ. John came first, Jesus came next. In fact, the word that John chooses there intimates discipleship. The one that comes after me in a slightly provocative manner, John is perhaps hinting here that his very first disciple is Jesus Christ. And he indicates to us through this speech that he was but a forerunner to Jesus. Not simply in time did he precede Jesus, but in ministry, in theology. And we see that by virtue of the fact that Jesus shows up preaching exactly the same sermon that John preached. So now with that being stated, consider the significance of John's arrest. Consider the significance of John being handed over. It is a signal to us, to all who would care to observe, that this will be the destiny of Jesus also. Jesus comes preaching the same message, confronting sin, calling for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he understands that his end will be like John's. This is the end of John's public ministry now. He has been arrested and he will go on to be killed. Jesus knows that his end will be exactly the same. Jesus also will be handed over. That same verb occurs throughout the gospel narrative and especially in the passion narrative. Jesus knows that he will be betrayed. And so the twofold movement is explained by this correspondence. He withdraws as an act of wisdom. Jesus had been in the Jordan area. There was a 
a, a large ministry. John had called people to repentance. They were all going to him for baptism. He's now arrested. So wisdom would dictate that he withdraws from that area. Not because he fears being arrested. Jesus is not afraid of God's appointed end for him, of being handed over and killed. But he knows that now is not his time. So he withdraws. And then he goes, indicating that Jesus understands that he now has the baton. John's ministry is over. Jesus is now running with this message, with this gospel. Jesus understands that this will be a contentious message to many. In the Sermon on the Mount, just one chapter later, he will say to his disciples, blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. He understands the nature of his ministry. Jesus will go on to teach parables in the face of those who oppose him, knowing that he does not please them with his words. We will read in just a few chapters time that they sought to kill him. Early on in the gospel, in their hearts was to kill this man. Jesus knows that as he calls his disciples, as he gathers around him 12 men, Jesus knows as he pours his life into them, as he loves them and teaches them and instructs them, he knows that one of them will betray him. Hand him over to be crucified. And with all of that, Jesus moves on with the mission. He knows that his ministry will be one wherein he is betrayed. Now, if you think about what Matthew has been doing so far, there is an irony that arises. Jesus has been presented from chapter 1, verse 1 onwards as a king. Matthew's emphatic declaration, every single chapter has been, Behold the king! And now... We see that this king will be handed over. What kind of king is this? Another irony is that Matthew presents Jesus as not any earthly king, but as the Messiah, the Savior. He has come to bring you redemption, says Matthew. And with that in mind, if you've been following Matthew's argument, now you see that this so-called Savior will be arrested and handed over to be killed. What kind of salvation is that? But as with so many ironies that we see in the biblical text, if we probe them for long enough, they become the very means by which we see the glory of the gospel. As you probe these ironies of the king being arrested, of the savior being killed, therein you find the gospel. Jesus is a king, but he has come not to set up a military campaign and overthrow the Roman government, but to save sinners, to release those who are in bondage to sin. He is a savior, but he hasn't come so as to save his people from military or political oppression, he has come to reconcile his enemies. That is the nature of the gospel. 
And so it is exactly in accordance with the wisdom of God that the means by which he would affect this gospel is through the betrayal of one of his disciples. It is just showing us the splendor of God's plan that he would ordain through one of Jesus' disciples, the salvation that he brings would be effected. Not to say that there is any indication in the biblical text of Judas Iscariot have coming to faith in Christ, but that we understand Jesus reconciles his enemies to himself. Enemies like you and enemies like me. The very heart of the gospel can be understood by seeing that Jesus would be betrayed. He brings salvation to his enemy. And from there, Matthew introduces us exactly to what that salvation would look like. This is now the second theme that he introduces us to in this passage, having shown us that Jesus' ministry would be one of betrayal, he then quotes from Isaiah. I trust at this stage in our study of Matthew's gospel, you are not surprised by this. If you've been here since we've started, you'll note that this is one of Matthew's favorite things to do. He's writing initially, first and foremost, for a Jewish audience. Matthew's gospel is a very, very Jewish gospel. And so one of the things Matthew does in order to make his case for Jesus being the Christ and to show us the significance of his ministry, one of the things Matthew does, it would seem on a weekly basis, is to reach back into Old Testament scriptures and show us the fulfillment of Israel's theology. No different this week. Jesus moves to Galilee, and Matthew says, verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes from chapter 9. Now, I hope that you remember each and every time we've looked at a quotation from the Old Testament, I've tried to labor the fact that this is not simply a box-checking exercise. There were prophecies given in the Old Testament. Matthew sees their fulfillment in Christ. He's doing more than saying that box can now be checked. That's only part of what's happening. There is so much more. This is not simply a prophecy about geography, but it is a theology. And so every time Matthew quotes from the Old Testament, what he is doing is grabbing on a context. He's pulling on a theology. And he's, he's pushing that theology into his narrative. And he's saying, I want you to understand the things of Isaiah 9 with reference now to Jesus Christ. And so one thing that we're responsible to do every time we see this fulfillment language is to consider the original prophecy in its original context. So you might just turn back briefly the book of Isaiah and chapter 9, we've read it already this morning. It would help us just to see the larger context of this prophecy to understand what Matthew is saying when he draws attention to these words finding their fulfillment with Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 sits within a 
larger literary unit of Isaiah 7 through 9. And you may remember that we've already studied Isaiah 7 within the context of Matthew's gospel. Matthew draws on Isaiah 7.14 when he speaks about the virgin birth. The prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 7 is that there would be a child born of a virgin. And Matthew says it's fulfilled in Christ. What we have when we get to Isaiah chapter 9 is this child, this virgin born child now grown up. We see the ministry that he brings and it is a ministry of salvation. It is a robust gospel. What Isaiah gives us in chapter 9 is a robust picture of the salvation that Jesus brings. And we could make many observations about this salvation. I'll just give you a few of them from this text. First and foremost, notice it is a salvation that transforms the human heart utterly. Isaiah's words are that they walked in darkness, verse 2. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness. He talks about the reality of death and the light shining is a metaphor for salvation. It is not a self-help program. The salvation that Isaiah prophesies of that Matthew says is fulfilled in Jesus Christ is not a salvation that asks you to improve your life with the help of God's power. It is a salvation that clearly depicts you are utterly lost without the grace of the gospel. You are dwelling in darkness. That is a vivid picture for your spiritual depravity. You cannot help yourself because you can't see. And the salvation that Isaiah speaks of is one that shines light. It utterly transforms the human heart. That is the nature of the gospel that Jesus brings. Additionally, notice it is a gospel that goes beyond Israel to the nations. We see Galilee of the nations being referred to in chapter 9 verse 1. In Isaiah's day, Galilee would have been a Gentile rich area, even more so in Jesus' day. It is significant that Jesus moves in order to begin his public ministry to a Gentile rich area. And he will be there up until around about chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel. This will be his mission HQ. Because Jesus has a burden to preach the gospel to the nations. And that, if you remember, is a particular accent of Matthew's theology. All the way back in chapter 1 with that extended genealogy, one of the things that Matthew shows us through that is that this gospel is not for the Jewish people alone. You are listening to Timeless Truth Today. The Apostle Matthew was intentional in writing his gospel, which a careful reading will reveal, especially in his first three chapters, genealogies, prophetic verses, and John the Baptist. He wanted to convince the Jews, his countrymen, that Jesus was the true Messiah of Israel. And now in chapter 4, he shows Jesus is admittedly not serving Israel alone. It's for all the nations. And that's why Jesus headed to a Gentile region to minister first. This gracious outreach from Jesus and later commissioning his disciples to do likewise brought the gospel ultimately to us. 
If you'd like to learn more about God's gracious outreach to all nations, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org, select broadcast, and there you'll find more of Pastor's teachings to help you understand God's gospel of grace in Christ. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're in the area this Sunday and you don't have a local church, come worship with us, 10.30 a.m. each Sunday. The church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Tomorrow we continue in our new series with part two of Jesus Begins His Ministry with Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.